Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 91 for the week of June 7, 2015. We have a lot of amazing stuff to talk about on today's show. We're going to discuss what the strongest organic material in the world is. There's a new new kid on the block and the current winner. Have you ever wondered how many viruses you have been exposed to in your entire life? Well, science has the answer, sort of, kind of. We're going to learn about programming your DNA to reverse antibiotic resistance, which would be pretty amazing. We're going to talk about the fact that the cure to Ebola may have already been in your medicine cabinet for years. And does bacteria cause diabetes? It's a very interesting study that I want to talk about. Lots of fun stuff on today's show. Well, as you might expect, we have with us for potentially our last week in a while, and we really appreciate her filling in. I want to welcome researcher extraordinaire, Senny Wong. Thank you. How are you doing, Senny? Great. It's nice to be back on, and uh, I'm glad to give uh, Car- uh, Carolina a break for last week, and then hopefully she'll come back next week. Well, we've been loving you, Senny. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Thank you. We also have Christian Copley, Salem, our PhD student in molecular pharmacology. No, we don't. And well, back to normal. <laughs> what do you mean normal? It's there. been like a long time. I put that to bed for a while. <laughs> and I'm Scott Barnett. I am also a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I wanted to say a couple things out of the gate here. So um, I saw a documentary this weekend. It was on HBO, but I also think it's on lots of other things, uh, even PBS. Have you guys heard of this? I, I was just stumbling across it. It's only a 30-minute documentary, but it's called The Lion's Mouth Open. No, I don't um, think I've heard of it no. yet. So I'll t- I won't say very much about it because the whole point of it is not to give away the end or it wouldn't make – it would – just not be worth saying it but it's something we've talked about on the show before which is Huntington's disease and this it's a documentary about this uh, uh, this this woman whose whose father died of Huntington's disease when he was in his late 30s and she was like 33 at the time and Huntington's is a is a is a dominant um, is a is a dominant genetic disorder meaning that if either of your parents have it you have a 50% chance of, of getting with the, with these with these recessive diseases. Both of them have to have it. So the fact that her father had it and her mother did not means that she has a 50-50 chance. That is the worst coin flip on the planet you do not want to be exposed to. Uh, she has a 50-50 chance of getting Huntington's disease. And so she the whole documentary is kind of like her last night with her friends before she goes to the doctor and gets the results read to her whether or not she has the mutation for Huntington's disease. If she does, because her father had a pretty early onset, uh, she was probably going to get it in the next five years or so. And she just wanted to know if she had it rather than wake up each morning looking for the signs and symptoms, the cognitive you know, uh, issues associated with it or the shaking. It's Huntington's, when you die of it, it's kind of the worst of like Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's disease. You have... You have trouble issues moving, and and then you also lose your, your 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 brain too. You have big cognitive issues. So, she just wanted to know what the deal is, and so that's a documentary. Please search it out. It's called The Lion's Mouth Open. It is really good, and 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 you can find out what her her fate was, and it's a very very interesting idea. So, silence. Sounds awesome. 
No. <laughs> I was talking, but I had myself muted. So, <laughs> yeah. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, uh, I'm surprised I'm awake at all today. I, at about four this morning, uh, there was a sound downstairs that sounded somewhere between a, uh, well, it sounded like a, a ever so slightly different version of a, a fire or a, uh, what do you call it, a smoke alarm going off. But it wasn't. It was just my oven. Who have I googled the air it was giving me? It's a bad temperature sensor. But for whatever reason, it decided its best way to let me know it had a bad temperature sensor was to beep at the loudest noise possible. Oh my gosh! Continuously until I came down and, <laughs> and looked it's at like it a smoke and turned it off. <laughs> it basically is a smoke detector, except there's nothing dangerous. It's just like, hey, my temperature sensor's bad. So I got to deal with that, and uh, and I'm pretty tired now. So uh, apparently, if you don't replace it, your only option is to unplug the oven. So it's it's basically a – it's just Russian roulette when this thing's going to go off. It could go off at 2 in the afternoon. It could go off at 3 in the morning. So we'll see if it continues to do it. Do you? It's at 4 a.m. Well, does that mean you can still use the stove? I mean, I guess you got to plug it's, it back in. Yeah, you just have to do the little thing. It's ridiculous. But, uh, yeah, it still seems to work. So anyway, what do you guys do this week? I didn't do a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I started jogging in the mornings, and I realized that if you don't have anywhere to start, you're really at rock bottom. So it really sucks. <laughs> uh, as someone who's gone the full gamut between being in very good running shape to someone who's been the other end of the gamut, which is being in horrifically bad shape, I feel your pain. It's a, it's a pretty spectacularly unpleasant experience to start up running again because if you run at all, like even just for a few weeks, it's not a lot of work unless you're pushing yourself. You can get into that groove and you're thinking about other things, but when you start out again, it's it's painful. Like every <laughs> every step, your body's saying slow down or stop. Yes, you yes know? you're hitting the wall and, constantly. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Well, welcome back to the fold. Uh. I just, Indeed. I'm just starting, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right. So Nothing else, Christian. Are you just still running, lucky. Scott? Uh, I ran three times this week, so I am, I'm getting back into it. But it run is a, uh, I'm using a very liberal and broad definition of the word. <laughs> so you watered the Lightly lawn. jogging <laughs> with occasional walking for, uh, for two to four miles. So I'm, I'm, I'm not breaking any land speed records. I gotcha. <laughs> well, I mean, as long as you're um, doing something, that's great. Well, that's the idea. I'm trying to get back into it. But once it once you get across that threshold again, yeah, you can do five miles, and it's not that big of a deal, and it feels nice, and you're burning the calories. So anyway, <laughs> we've all been through it. That's that's. I guess that's what I did this week. Then I tried to cut my calorie count down to 1,500 calories a day, Ooh, just for one hard. week. Uh huh. Because um, I've been eating like total, absolute, utter crap for like the last two weeks. So. Which is funny because when I saw you on Friday, my first thought was you looked really thin. Oh, well, it's not that I – I mean, if you're already cutting your calories and then you eat a lot of crap, you just balance out. You don't gain weight. You buffer it. Yeah, yeah, there's a buffer. But I wanted to lose. I still have like 10 pounds left on my, my goal to my goal. Uh-huh. And I was um, not getting anywhere. I've been plateauing a lot because I this time it was because I was eating too much. So I tried to jumpstart it, and I lost like four and a half pounds. So some of that's water, but I basically have balanced to zero with 1,500 calories by running at the gym 
And because of pizza on Friday night, yesterday I ran on the elliptical for an hour. Wow. <laughs> and I did so almost 800 calories in one Jeez. in one run. Oh, <laughs> that is really good. Yeah, I was watching you, Star Trek on my phone, so it went by pretty quick. <laughs> well, you look great, my friend. Thank you. Although Christian is one of these guys who... Um, so I, Christian always used to call himself fat, which he never was. Uh, Christian's one of these lucky guys that when he puts on weight, he just gets a little bit of a paunch. Um, and that's that's the weight thing here. And that's like the best way to do it because everything else still more or less looks the same, not too terribly different. Like me, me, when I put on weight, it looks like someone went to every square inch of my body and injected like a like a couple mils of fluid. Like I basically <laughs> just expand in every direction simultaneously. It's like, what the freak, man? You know what I mean? I, so, yeah, I do that, but it's proportional. So uh -huh. it's hard to tell. If I don't lose 25, 30 pounds, it's hard to tell. But when right. I do, all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, your neck disappeared. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty awesome. All right. Anyway, well, uh, enough of this banter. They people, <laughs> the people. Let's give them what they've come for. Let's move on to science blast. Science blast. Do do It, Sunny. That's yeah. a very half-hearted attempt. This is your last week. Uh, Hold on. No. I, I've never done this in 91 episodes. Oh my goodness. We're gonna back the train up. We're gonna play this game again. No way! Oh, oh my God, you aren't gonna. Let's edit move on to anything. This will all be in science blast. Science blast. Boo! Goo! Goo! This is all gonna be in there. It, the whole thing, the entire spiel is gonna be in there. Doing it over again. I'm betting a hundred dollars. This Senny, as, as much as I loved you on the show, I, I'm always there's just a deep level of disappointment with your pews. I, I'm good. I, I feel I like I need to I tell you this. I, I didn't apply to be, you know, a sound effect expert, so I'm good. <laughs> That's awesome. I just asked you to put your heart into it. I'm putting my heart into the art. Pew like nobody's listening. <laughs> what? All right. That's amazing. Dance like uh -oh. right. nobody's watching. Okay. So let's talk about some stories. I potentially have three stories although i don't think i'm gonna get through all of them so rather than stack them all i'll go ahead and do one you guys can mull over who goes second here so the first one i want to talk about is a science article from from the journal science that just came out on june 5th and it is called a comprehensive serological profiling of human populations using a synthetic human virome yay yay pretty cool so all the headlines say a 25 dollars test can now tell you every virus you've ever been exposed to it turns out that's wrong on pretty much a lot of levels, but they got the heart of it right, the spirit of it right. <laughs> this test could be done for $25. It is not commercially available. This is being done in labs, and they say that the if you were to look at just the reagents to do this experiment, it would be about $25. Now, they're using millions of dollars in equipment, and if this was a commercial product, it would probably cost you several hundred dollars. But in any case, let's move on to what the story is actually about here. So what they did is they screened. Um, blood samples, serological samples from 569 human donors across four continents, and they've developed an assay, and we'll talk about what the assay is, that can account for over 100 million antibody peptide interactions from over 206 viruses and over a, a th with over 1,000 different strains of these viruses. So in other words, they can look at 1,000 viral variants from 200 different viruses for a total of 100 million combinations. Now, 
200 viruses is a lot, but believe me, there are a metric ton more level of viruses <laughs> out there that can cause damage. But these are the 200. I don't. They didn't list what all of them were, but I'm guessing the most common and probably the most virulent and deadly ones that that you should be concerned of being exposed to as a human being. Uh, think about like HPV and stuff, which can cause cervical cancer. All these things are important to know if you've been exposed to. So I think they just went for kind of a top hit list right Do now. Do they have different strains as well? I mean, like, you know, if you get a flu, you get there's a bunch of different strains. Uh, we'll talk about the flu. It's a very interesting side point here. But yeah, so they a thousand strains from 200 viruses. So if you were split that evenly, it'd be five strains per virus. But I think a lot of these viruses have a lot of commonly known strains. And we'll explain how it is that they ended up doing this and why those numbers make sense here in a minute. Okay, so uh, briefly I'll explain how how it works here. And they work under the principle of, of, of your body generating antibodies. If you get a exposure to a virus, your body's T cells, uh, which are part of your immune system, are going to bind to that virus and they're going or a fraction of the virus and they're going to say hey you don't belong here we need to destroy you i need to rally the troops so it blows out a horn call and says hey let's kill this bad boy that virus um or that the t-cell goes over to a b-cell they hook up and it said the the t-cell goes hey b-cell uh you see this little piece of fragment here that I've, i've got in my hands you need to develop antibodies against this so we can kill it so then the b-cell creates antibodies these antibodies are hugely, massively specific for this one little thing that the T cell found. When that antibody binds to that virus, it will mark it for destruction. Your macrophages will eat it or it will render the virus inoperable because it will bind to a part of the virus that needs to bind to the cell. And now the virus can't bind to the cell. So in any case, these are the B cells. Now, after you've killed the virus, the, the infection's gone and your body says everything's hunky-dory. You have a small group of those B cells that turn into what are called memory B cells. These memory B cells can stick around in your body for years, even decades. And the idea that the B cells is that at a very, they pump out antibodies against this, uh, against whatever it was initially fighting at a very slow rate, not a lot of them, just a few at a time, but they stick around for a very long time. The idea being that is if you're exposed to that virus in the future, your body can instantly mount a defense. It's very, it can, if the, the B cell, if it sees those again, it can immediately go, aha, boom, and it can jump up antibody production. And chances are you won't even ever feel sick. Your body will take care of the virus before uh, that goes, before anything goes wrong. So back to the test, right? It works on the idea that your body has, is continually producing antibodies at a low serological level against any virus it's been exposed to. And what they've done is they've created a library of these bacteriophages. Bacteriophages are viruses that attack bacteria, right? So they started with these bacteriophages. And I think they started with bacteriophages for a couple of reasons. A, they're unlikely to create an illicit immune response to your body. So you're probably not going to have a lot of antibodies against bacteriophages. And on top of that, if you are using a bacteriophage, um, it's going to, you're not going to have to use the actual viruses here. And what I mean by that is that they take the bacteriophage, they replace a small sequence on the virus with whatever virus they're trying to identify, HIV, hep C, HPV. So now you have a bacteriophage that looks like the virus you want to found. It's largely just a virus, but it has a very specific sequence in it that says, I'm HIV, I'm hep C, except it's not infective, of course, right? So they mix your drop of blood with the these specially developed um, uh, bacteriophages 
And if you have an antibody towards the HIV or hep C or whatever it is, in any one of these 206 viruses in the test, the antibody is going to bind to that bacteriophage. Then they have a plate that binds any antibody whatsoever. So they run your blood sample over this plate and all the antibodies are going to stick to this plate here. They wash off anything that's left. And so now all you have are antibodies stuck to the plate with a, um, uh, with whatever virus they were binding to that represented HIV, hep C, whatever the case may be. Now, if any of those antibodies were reactive against those viruses, they're going to be stuck there, right? Now they just digest up those samples and they run it through a microarray. Microarray is a very fun piece of equipment we can talk about another time. But the microarray can identify those virus fragments here. And in the end, they can know which of the viruses you were exposed to. So the results are interesting, right? Christian and I talked about this briefly without having read the paper. And, I mean, out of 206 potential common viruses, Christian, remember we were talking about, like, what do you think the number of viruses that they would identify you've been exposed to was? Oh, well, I was thinking, I mean, you could be up to, there could be thousands of viruses laying around right. in your body. Um, it, I mean, if you count all your colds, a lot of people get one or two colds a year. Um, right. That's, so, you know. Hold on. I'm going to back tramp a bit and say, take colds and flus out of the equation, and I'll explain why. Um. Oh, God. I. I don't even think that's predictable. Like, I don't have any data set that would tell me. Because nor I, nor anyone. If, yeah, I guess that's what not, makes it so if interesting, you don't get right? symptoms from it, how would you know? Like, you, it'd be Right, impossible. and I really would like to know what the fullest of these 200 viruses was. Uh, it may be deep in the paper. I didn't see it. But in any case, the number is, if you're wondering, is about 10 viruses on average. Oh. A couple people had antibodies to over 84 viruses, but those were outliers. Uh so of the 200 viruses, 1,000 variants, and 100 million combinations, you're ex- they found the average person exposed to about 10 viruses. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these viruses are very bad. HIV, hep C, HPV, all sort of stuff. Uh, herpes, you know, they're, um, uh, they're... So if you would expect not everyone to be exposed to all these sort of things. But 10 is the actual number here. And the reason I think it's fairly low is for a couple of reasons. The test has a tendency to let very small viruses, such as noroviruses, slip by. Um, the reason being is that it, the smaller the virus, the, le- the less binding epitopes you have, the less little sequences for the antibody to bind to. And so the chances of them pulling the right sequence from that anti- from that virus and having it bind, they're saying it's hard to find identify these small ones here. The other one is that if you're... Uh, um, if you were infected by multiple viruses at different times, you know, each one of these is going to elicit its own immune response when you get sick. And if the viruses are very closely related, there's a very good chance that this little section of, of the flu virus they pulled out and they're using anti- these antibodies to, uh, to bind to, there's a very good chance that they, um, that it's seeing the same, different viruses at the same virus. And, and that's something that they're, they can control by control for by taking more and more samples of the virus and different sections of the virus. But ultimately, they're saying you could have gotten sick four years in a row, but if the the, the strain was close enough, that they may not identify it there. So, uh, so those are two reasons why these numbers are probably lower than they are in real life. Plus, we're only looking at two hundred viruses. And one thing they didn't mention, though, or at least I didn't see it. And tell me what you guys think. I would assume that anything you've had an immunization towards should be detected by this test as you being exposed to the virus, right? Yeah, like, like, and uh, can't speak right now. It's good. We're fine. <laughs> Move on. But any 
any immunization you get is designed to elicit an right. immune response so you develop these memory b cells that's th their whole job is for you to create these memory b cells so you can you can attack the virus if you are exposed to so it so you're generally. talking about like if you had a vaccine for like the chicken pox it should come up on the test as well it should say <laughs> you've got you you have chicken pox or or hpv vaccine now you know mm -hmm. what i mean it should it, it, i don't this test should not be able to differentiate between a true exposure versus an immunization so i don't know that's a that's a well thing. even so, with the immunization sometimes you don't get the you don't elicit the the maximum immune response that you want um for instance like when we take our bloodborne pathogens class and they ask you if you want your hepatitis it was like a and b shot or something right uh, i apparently i had it but i still didn't get the the titers for it so i went back and got another booster shot again so sometimes you might actually have to get another booster shot to get with the boosters mm -hmm. yeah but in theory, though, if done properly, I mean, the, it would not be a vaccine unless you had developed memory B cells. It, it wouldn't be a good vaccine because yeah. what's the point then? So I don't know. Um, in the future, this is called Verscan, Firescan. I don't know how you want to spell it, V-I-R-S-C-A-M. But uh, they want to use it to adapt to test for different fungus you've been exposed to as well as your microbiome, so bacteria uh, as well. And it's a very quick uh, way. In the past, the reason this is – unique as in the past you would have to test for each virus individually it's expensive it's time consuming but because of these microarrays they can do all this in one big go and um and we'll see what data they can collect from it so hmm. what, what would be the target Indeed. audience that would be appeals to getting those i mean someone who gets sick constantly uh, I think that ultimately this is all going to be about big data. I think they're trying to develop a very large data set to look for correlations between certain combinations of viral exposure and disease sets. That would be my guess. I don't know of any therapeutic that would immediately be available from this or any real information that an individual would be interested in. <laughs> but but uh, we'll see. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing now with big data is just get a whole bunch of data from millions of people and see what correlations you can find. So. Yeah, true. Which... By the way, that is a terrible way to do statistics. Um, <laughs> you mean you mean non-hypothesis-driven science? What could you possibly? Well, no. Be here's the, okay. Here's the problem. It if you have a giant set of data, let's say that you looked at people who eat cheese and people who don't eat cheese, and you look at every parameter you can get your hands on. Let's say you look at a thousand parameters. Just by statistical probability alone you're going to find correlations for things that doesn't necessarily mean there's an effect there. It just means that you can find one or two correlations amongst thousands of possible correlations just by luck. I mean, if you have a p-value of 0.5, you're going to find a significant number of correlations. 0.5. Uh-huh. Yeah, 0.05 by random chance in a thousand data points. If you don't yes. have a predetermined thing that you're looking at so it's dangerous to take big data sets and try to turn them into any sort of information because you're still going to have to go back and do the individual experiments to verify any of those correlations and i guarantee you that 99 percent of them are going to turn out to be false and yes and every correlation they find will be a, a headline in the news saying yeah. you know it's it's you know in other words, Christian, you're trying to tell me that there's not an inverse correlation between the demise of pirates and the increase in global warming? I'm telling you exactly <laughs> that, as sad as that may be. 
isn't it important just to have the availability of the data i mean it's i mean that's kind of the reason why they want to do with all these parameters that they want this bank of data that if they need it or if they have the question they can go back and look for it absolutely and I, i'm all for this type of research it is great it's fine it's good to have the database but i also agree with christian that it's very easy statistically christian brought up the biggest point statistically you're going to get significance at 0.05 which means that as he said five out of every hundred samples you get are going to be false positives they're going to say that something is statistically significant when it is by no means statistically significant by our own math that we've agreed upon as scientists here and if you're doing millions of samples you're going to find tons of stuff that look really really promising that mean absolutely nothing like a lot of so, chihuahua studies for the genome yeah, association that, studies okay yeah it's a perfect example but that is what i do and it's the say you have the same sort of potential issues with your math spec stuff yeah so you go yeah. through a huge extra portion of statistical rigor to avoid too many of those. Um, you do weird things like inject uh, like intentional false positives into the experiment so that you can compare like the background rates and like all the stuff that I don't exactly understand because I wasn't paying too much attention. <laughs> My boss likes to explain things to me when we're both drunk out of our mind, so. Um, <laughs> That's like his favorite <laughs> mode. But um, yeah, it, it's an incredibly difficult thing, even when you have a hypothesis, not to take a, a large data set and draw like erroneous. So, Yeah, I almost feel that we're going to have to redefine these lines ultimately when it comes to computer analysis as well, because we dial into the computers to the point where they're able to do analysis that we're not able to as far as the line, the level of significance and what it means to be significant I think is going to change because the computers are going to be able to crunch numbers in a way that our human puny brains are incapable of and they might be able to define a different level of significance that really aren't using a p-value system you know yeah p-value's got to go anyway but I mean, you can count on p-values if you're doing four Western blots because the odds of you getting that four being your one, you know, your five out of 100 are pretty low. But right. if you're doing 1,000, then you're going to have, by you actually have to have false positives. So it, it becomes a mess and no longer a valid statistical method. So Indubitably. Senny, I want to... I want to go on the lighter side of science here okay. a little bit, and I, w I want to hear about the strongest organic material on our planet Earth. All right. Um, so this article came out of the Royal Society Publishing, and it was by a group in the UK. Um, so the original organic material that was considered the sh that had the strongest um, tensile strength was actually spider silk. Um, it actually uh, the. Did you read that they just made synthetic spider silk too? Oh no, I, I had a few years back I had read something like they were trying to get goats to make some sort of variation of spider silk, but I don't know how well that research that would be came hilarious. out. Hilarious! I'll try to remember to look it up for next okay. week. Although I, there were two stories I was supposed to talk. I t said last week I'd talk about this week. I've got to learn not to do that because I didn't talk about either of them. Oh. But in any case, <laughs> spider silk next week. I promise. Um, so continue, please. I apologize. For oh, that. no, no worries. Um, so this article says that they found the teeth of limpets, um, which are an aquatic snail, having has the um, strongest tensile strength. Um, tensile strength is actually um, the resistance of a material to breaking when it is under tension. 
like the longitudinal axis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, what's the maximum strength that this material can withstand bef- while being stretched or pulled before failing or breaking? Uh, so limpets are actually, well, like I said, they're aquatic snails. They're different from, I guess, from other sea snails because the, I guess it's based on the, sh- the identification of their, their shell. So they don't have a coiling uh, pattern on their shell. So these are like ones that just like stick onto rocks. So the reason why in nature they're really sh- these limpets are really strong is because they're attached to rocks and they have to scrape at the rock to eat their food source, which is algae. And then they also have to use that same mechanism to bind to the rock when the tides or waves are coming in and actually so they don't break off. So theoretically, it makes sense that they they have this really powerful tongue that is coated with teeth that allows them to stick onto these rocks and they in the article it says that there's tensile strength they found to be ranging from 30 3 to 6.5 gigapascals to put that into perspective i think human teeth is about 0.04 0.05 gigapascals so it's like almost a hundredfold difference Okay, so 100 times stronger than human teeth. Yes, okay. and then I guess if you compare, that's... I wonder what beaver teeth are. <laughs> I'm sure you looked that up, I, right? I'm sure there, there's some, <laughs> there might be something for that. Uh, but uh, for but the upper range of the, of the limpid teeth at 6.5 gigapascals is actually comparable to the strongest... Um, let's see, this... The strongest man-made fibers, which is a high-performance Torre T1000G carbon fiber, with which also has a tensile strength of 6.5. Of carbon fiber? Yes. Oh. Yeah, so those are really interesting. But it is good to note that limpid teeth is actually... It may be an organic material, but it's actually a hybrid of organic material. So it's like it's basically a type of... Um, I guess the rock is called girthite. So these nanofibrils of girthite are reinforce this protein matrix in the teeth of these limpids. So it's not really technically exclusively organic like it is for spider silk. So maybe spider silk might still maintain its position because it's exclusively organic versus the, the limpid teeth. Right, right, right. Um, well, the, the big question is, is when are they going to turn this into a product right that's what yeah, the smart yeah, people yeah. always do they let someone do all this hard research and then they're like let's just look at the sequence and let's make this into something like a coding for your watch that is now stronger than anything yeah you yeah know? so i mean it's kind of great because then now they know the material this girthite mineral nanofibers if you embed it into a protein matrix it makes it really strong so maybe this is a way of reinforcing materials that could be really strong like making a better version of kevlar or something with these fiber nanofibers yeah, it would be interesting. I just looked up the beaver teeth, by the way. I didn't find the strength, but you know what be- make beaver teeth so strong and why their teeth are so ugly? Iron. <laughs> There's iron. That's very right, yeah. Christian. Yep, they have iron embedded in their teeth. Actually, that's so. what um, girthrite is also, and that's also in this thing. It's it's an iron-based. Yes. We need to stop recording immediately and develop our own biotech firm. <laughs> we'll call it the beaver advantage. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, no one will mistake that. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Uh, well, cool. <laughs> I like that. So uh, minerals and iron uh, are the key to strong, the strongest material on the planet from an organic substance. Mm. Yep. Go team. <laughs> Christian. Yes. 
Habla conmigo. Um, was that something? I said you're very pretty. Oh, thank you, I guess. Question mark. Um, I thought you said I... habla con amigo, meaning like, like you're <laughs> my friend or uh, something. <laughs> you listen too oh, well, okay. Cindy. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. We've talked about every element of this story in the past, so I thought it was kind of interesting that I would bring some of that stuff together. Um, as a reminder, we have talked about antibiotic resistance a lot, and I think it's probably the one topic that I personally have invested the most emotional energy in on the show because I think that if there's going to be a coming apocalypse, it isn't going to be global warming, it's going to be bacterial resistance. Um, and Carolina talked about them, you know, using less antibiotics and food, which is probably a benefit, probably gonna be pretty good for, the, for the, that problem. But one of the things that no one has really done yet is found a way to reverse antibiotic resistance because what happens is in the bacteria, and I believe we've talked about this before, antibiotic resistance a lot of the times is carried around on plasmids, which are little loops of DNA that the bacteria can conveniently copy and pass around to their friends. So it, it's really nasty because one bacteria can develop one and another bacteria can have another and they can trade them. So now they both have both. So this is one of the reasons why you find bacteria with like six and seven antibiotic resistances in animal farms because they're pumping so many antibiotics into them that the pre selection pressure creates this farm, no pun intended, this group of bacteria. P-H-A-R-M. Yeah, right. Ha, that's funny. That are, <laughs> that basically this group of bacteria is immune to all of these antibiotics and they pass them around. So where normally, if you were just expecting each organism to evolve resistance individually, you'd get maybe one, maybe two in extreme cases, but because they can collect them like trading cards and pass them around, you get incredible amounts of resistance in, in populations and they spread like wildfire. So being able to reverse or interrupt that process would be an amazing thing. And one of the other things that we've talked about recently is CRISPR, which I don't remember specifically the level of detail that we went into um, as far as what CRISPR is and where it comes from. But I'm just going to review real quick. CRISPR is a system that's actually developed by bacteria naturally. I don't even know what that word means. Um, evolution program bacteria to have this CRISPR system, which for them is, ironically enough, a defense against viruses. And that's going to be ironic in a second, but so what bacteria do is if a virus comes along and it injects its DNA, a lot of viruses have similar structures to their DNA sequence and the bacteria have evolved these um, DNA destruction mechanisms where they use the RNA template and then the DNA cleaving enzyme that's attached to this RNA template to attack and destroy um, foreign DNA or RNA, I guess DNA, I'm not sure if it does both in the bacteria, but we of course have harnessed this technology to be able to use that RNA and the DNA cleaving mechanism to create changes in, in cell lines and potentially other things. And we've talked about all of that. 
But what some crafty little researcher decided to do was take the DNA plasmids that CRISPR is made out of. So CRISPR is just when you insert this system into a cell, you're using plasmids to do it. Well, plasmids can be injected by viruses. And so now we, we have this cool, like ironic twist on the entire um, process because what happens is these researchers are programming viruses to inject CRISPR mechanisms into the bacteria. And what the CRISPR mechanism can do is target and knock out the antibiotic resistance genes that we, that we know are there. So uh -huh. we have taken a bacterial defense mechanism against viruses. We have extracted it, twisted it, put it back in the virus, and we're now using a virus to attack the bacteria with it. That to me is pretty awesome. But um, so they haven't done this in the field yet. They are, this is one of those sort of, we may be reporting ahead of the curve. It was published in um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. Penis, yeah. <laughs> My favorite science. <laughs> of course it is. Because it sounds so funny. <laughs> Which is another piece of irony. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, our beer company, can we can publish in penis. <laughs> make it innovative yeah i've got a juvenile wow, brain you you have sunk so low today it's amazing <laughs> um you're even impressing me and i i sink low all the time but um <laughs> so yeah the first uh i can't pronounce these bacterial names to save my life but pseudomonas arginosa aeruginosa is the first um in hospital bacterial environment that they want to test this on because obviously it works in the lab and that doesn't really mean anything getting a virus to infect its host its natural host and inject a plasmid is not super technically complicated in the lab the idea for this is the brilliant part not the technical part of it but doing this in a hospital where you have a a variety of different bacterium that they kind of work together sometimes so you're not exactly sure if, you know, this will work on um, catheter surfaces or, you know, other, other things. They suspect that this will be able to combine with um, actually going back to using antibiotics. And this system together should be able to knock out um, the bacteria resistance problem in hospitals because if the bacteria develop resistance, then we just knock it back down. So, so tell me if I heard you right here. The idea is, so these viruses are bacteriophages. Yes. They, and they will inject a plasmid that is non-antibacterial resistant, and then that bacteria will share it with his friends too, plus there's lots of virus around, and therefore the bacteria can be retroactively converted back to non resistance is that accurate yeah it um what's happening is that they are <clears throat> using crispr to crispr's natural method is to create double stranded breaks in the dna and right. i don't i think we talked about this but what happens is once you create the double stranded breaks dna does some sort of weird double 
stranded homology thing to try to repair itself. Uh, Which is not very good at. Right. Non-homologous end joining, all that does is just that's there to keep the DNA from falling apart. It, it isn't actually a very good mechanism for preserving any sort of clarity in that area. And what it's the non-preservation is, that allows it's an advantage for using it, too. Right. Because you build in the mutations that will destroy the gene, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can have it just randomly cut and then put back together and create mutations with stop codons in them and things. You can also put templates in there to, mm -hmm. to create the mutations. Because what it'll right. do is it'll find the template, and instead of doing non-homologous end joining, it'll use the template to repair itself. So it will repair based on the template, which you can change the template to be what you want. In this case, I'm pretty sure I can't get to the paper because it's ahead of publication, um, and it isn't in. It's I can see the abstract of PNAS, but I can't see the uh, the article in PubMed yet because it's before publication. But there, it doesn't say exactly, but I'm pretty sure that what they're doing is just using the double-stranded break and the non-homologous end-joining part of it to break the gene. Because we know the sequence the of The antibacterial resistance gene. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yep. So the okay. phage infects the bacteria. It puts CRISPR in it. CRISPR just, you know, tweaks the plasmid, and the plasmid's no longer effective. So then you have a bacteria that can pass around this ineffectual plasmid, and you, you break the chain of, of inheritance so to speak, um, as well as preventing that bacteria from surviving an antibiotic attack. So It's an interesting different approach. Rather than trying to create a new drug, you're just trying to <laughs> yeah, we will, dismiss the need for a new we drug. We were never going to outrun them with drugs. <laughs> right. No, I mean, true. you and I and everyone on this podcast knows how much time and energy it takes to create one drug and billions of dollars. We were never going to outrun them. Right. Wasn't it only recently that they finally discovered a new antibiotic and it's been like a couple decades yeah. it's or like something. 1950 or something i think yeah, we talked yeah, yeah. about that like several episodes ago okay. but yeah there, there's no way that we were going to outrun them like <laughs> at the pace of one every 50 years we were screwed so okay. th this could be this could very well be um a, a major first step and a pretty good idea actually to be honest this CRISPR thing has pretty much changed the face of molecular biology so. Well, and yeah, it really has. And on top of that, if this does work in the wild, anytime you get a new resistance, it's almost trivial to create a new bacteriophage that can cut where you want. You just say, ah, this is where the resistance occurs. Create a new uh, bacteriophage. Off you go. Release. And now we have resistance. We decrease resistance to that. Yes. It will always be a cat and mouse game, but we have a tool that allows us to very rapidly develop something against the bacteria's change yeah we don't we no longer have to rely on luck we can right. specifically target each individual thing so right. yeah well cool 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 so uh i have two stories but i'm just gonna do one i'll let you two decide one of them is about uh the potential to use some common FDA-approved drugs to treat Ebola, or the other one is about bacteria potentially being a cause of type 2 diabetes. Ebola or diabetes, my friends. I feel like you should talk about the Ebola thing because that's kind of your shtick on this show. It is my shtick. Although, we're talking you, about being sounds healthy. interesting, too. Yeah, I was thinking the diabetes because we were talking about being healthy. And oh, dear. You... <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I will... Um, 
I'll save the diabetes one simply because it's a health-related thing, and maybe um, maybe Carolina will want to chime in. That'd be good. And I will remind so, you specifically to talk about this next. Okay, much <laughs> appreciated. Okay, so uh, this story just came out in Science Translational Medicine, and its title was A Screen of Approved Drugs and Molecular Probes Identifies Therapeutics with Anti-Ebola Virus Activity. Very informational title there that I like. It's not confusing. A screen of approved drugs is the key words here. So this is the Gene, his name is Gene, ironically, and he's a scientist, Gene ah. Olinger. Uh, in his lab, they did a study that was led by Lisa Johansson and her group, and they basically have tested, not basically, they actually have, I say basically a lot on the show, they have tested 2,600 approved drugs and molecular probes in an in vitro infection assay. Uh, so they took things that, the hardest part about developing a drug is getting, making sure it's safe and getting FDA approval. So they just said, why don't we just take 2,600 drugs that are we know already do stuff in your body and let's just put them on some cells. We'll run an assay to see if they're, they're effective against Ebola here, right? And they found antiviral activity against Ebola in 80 different already approved FDA drugs spanning, what's interesting is a whole what broad swath of, of mechanisms uh, that these drugs are are associated with they're like uh, estrogen receptor modulators antihistamines calcium channel blockers antidepressants like ssris the whole range and they're they're showing effect in these in vitro uh, assays which uh it's not as promising as it sounds we'll get into that so the team um they tested several of these drugs in mice so they said well let's look at these most promising ones that we've tested on cells that seem to prevent Ebola from infecting the cells. Let's test them on mice. This is the very common next step. Let's test it on a vertebrate animal, higher order eukaryote. And um, they found that Zoloft, which is an antidepressant SSRI, and there's a heart drug uh, called Vascor, and uh, they worked very well in the mice. In fact, seven of the 10 mice that were exp uh, inoculated with Zoloft survived uh, an hour, which is a, a pretty big milestone with the level of infection they had had in these mice uh, and all 10 survived with vascor which is a calcium channel blocker for your heart here so it helps with the arrhythmia in the heart i believe um so how does this work like how like why would these drugs working on here specifically they basically work by um uh by preventing entry into the cell and often they will prevent if they get in, they'll prevent exit into the cell, exit from the cell. There's not, we don't have a strong mechanism behind these yet. I mean, nobody's tested why an SSRI would prevent Ebola from entering a cell, but I'm sure that work will be done here. And um, uh, so Thomas Giesbert, he is an immunologist at the University of Texas. He did not, uh, he did not participate in the study, but he had something interesting to say because he's an expert in, in, in this field here. And he, this is a direct quote from him. Uh, I got this from a, a Verge article, I should say. This is an interview from the Verge. He said, I and others have shelves and shelves full of things that show some in vitro activity against Ebola. And of those, there are dozens or so that can protect mice. Unfortunately, of all the drugs that protect rodents, ZMAP, which is the one we've talked about in the past that they make in tobacco leaves, uh, and TKM Ebola, which we haven't talked about, are the only ones that work well in non-human primates so far. So think higher, higher order like, like uh, chimpanzees and monkeys. Uh, given the number of drugs that have been screened for Ebola over the years, the odds of finding anything efficacious as ZMAP or TKM Ebola are very remote. What he's saying is a problem that's always dealt with when if you're developing a drug from scratch or or 
using a pre-existing drug, which is if you if you have a 200,000 compound library from from plants and animals you've gotten all over the world, you can test those on cells and you're going to get all these positive results. Look at this one. Look at this one. From that group, you go and you start testing on mice and then that group's going to shrink a whole bunch. And then you're like, hey, look at this. We have five drugs that completely protect Ebola from mice. We're going to go make our millions of dollars now. And then you test them on monkeys and none of them work. This is super common. It happens all the time. So while this is a very interesting thought and it's a, it's a very in my opinion, good route to go. Now, again, it's not hypothesis-based science, but it does have a place in that let's use these drugs that have already been shown to be safe in humans that have been tested, that are approved, and let's why not do this with a bunch of other... I'm sure people are, but why not... Why just Ebola? We should be looking at tons of different things. Now we can look at the mechanism down the road. It is a, Once it's effective, you can say, why is it effective? It's kind of a backwards approach to science, which is find a result, then determine why, uh, rather than starting with the hypothesis and determining whether the null hypothesis is accurate, but that's for another day. But it's it's interesting. I liked it. Hmm? Am I alone here? Oh, no, nope. it sounds really cool. I mean, it, it would be great to... I thought they had approached this similar way with like HIV and other viruses, but uh, I'm guessing it's, it's more pertinent with the Ebola virus, huh? Uh. You mean tested these drugs for other vir- with other viruses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just like the screening method. I thought they would have done it with other viruses. I think in this case they were specifically looking for an Ebola treatment, probably because they started all this during the during the epidemic that was almost a pandemic. Uh, and I bet they were probably like, let's just take a look at all these drugs, see if we can find something fast and dirty that works. And if this, because they were probably preparing for a worst case scenario, which is if ZMAP turns out not to be that great. And this Ebola goes from a localized or regional uh, issue in, in Africa and starts becoming a pandemic. We might need a lot of options really quick. And, and I'm putting words in their mouth and I'm, they at no point said this, but I'm guessing they were looking for alternatives for drugs that have already been approved so that if it got really bad, they could just throw this out to the masses and say, uh, if you're showing signs of Ebola, take Zoloft and uh, you may be all right, you know. <laughs> So we'll see. We'll see. Good times. Mm. Yeah. Indeed. Oh, my. I meant to do this at the top of the show. Maybe I should insert it there. Uh, I have a rare correction to make hmm. oh. brought up by one of our listeners. Yes. Um, uh, we'd probably have a lot more corrections in the show if more people bothered fact-checking what we said, in particular me, a lot of the time because I just kind of ramble off. And when you have 90 hours of audio, I'm sure I've said so many things that are wildly inaccurate. But uh, we were I was corrected on something I said last week here. And I'm going to read a little quote from the individual who sent it. I forgot to ask them if I can use their name on the air, so I'm not going to use their name. Uh, but this is what they said. Uh, so you remember uh, last week we were talking about Monsanto and I talked about them suing farmers whose seeds had blown onto their property and their they just started growing random plants from Monsanto and Monsanto's like, you didn't pay for those, blah, blah, blah. Well, what this person said, who happens to be an expert in the field, is that Monsanto has never sued farmers for what could plausibly be deemed accidental use of patented seeds or seeds that receive patented DNA via cross-pollination. Uh, it's a commonly repeated myth, this individual says. The lawsuits are generally people who deliberately save or replant seeds, which by contract and patent law, they knew they had to buy new every year. And the essence of what they're saying is that if you the seeds accidentally blow into your property, uh, Monsanto's never 
actually sued for that. I don't know. If, like, again, I haven't dug into this deep. Maybe there, there's some bullying going on there or some threats. I, I don't know. But they say nobody's actually been sued for that. So that's a, it's an important correction to make. And another thing this person, individual, brought up was that Monsanto actually tried to do this um, this Terminator seed where, where, uh, where the seed would basically have a self-destruct sequence in it where after one uh, one crop cycle the, the seed would die off there and there was a lot of public outcry against that uh and 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 so they never actually went that route there and i'm actually glad they didn't man talk about genetic drift is always an issue when it comes to seeds imagine if if a, the section of the dna that caused it to go through apoptosis and die after one cycle started spreading itself throughout the out other plants that would be a pretty bad scenario there so i actually from my limited knowledge of genetic drift would would probably think that's a good thing that they did not do the terminator seed so so we just so we don't get another um another correction correction genetic Uh drift is not even remotely close to what you just said but that's okay isn't that called horizontal gene transfer you're right horizontal gene transfer evolutionary change in a single species within a single cell like for virus yes sorry i i I, i'm full of misinformation (laughs) (laughs) i figured in a segment about you know a correction you're right genetic drift is common in viruses virus it's when you have a change within a single organism not not a a, the spread that is correct it makes for an interesting talk so that's good (laughs) (laughs) go team um thank you for the correction individual and um and uh i'm more than happy to make corrections when they are needed so i think uh i think we'll put a bow on this episode did you guys bring any bad jokes, or is it all on me again? It's become my thing, which I promise you is not my intent. I was <laughs> hoping we would all break stuff, but uh, I haven't pushed it. So uh, I'm guessing uh, I, I, I'm alone today. Uh, I guess you could. Have you ever heard, like, the I'm dad jokes? No. Awkward ending commence, please. Well, I guess it could be, like, so I'd say I'm sick. Dad says, hi, I'm sick. I'm dad. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just to make it cheesy. You've made this spectacularly awkward. <laughs> I commend you. <laughs> um, I, I have a couple bad science jokes here to, to end it out with. Okay, are you guys ready? Yes. Why is the pH of YouTube very stable? Oh, God. I'm... Because it constantly buffers. Oh, <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I like that one. I thought it was funny. Although YouTube doesn't constantly buff the rest. Yeah, I was like, really my good, internet is not that bad. <laughs> I like the joke. Okay, so a neutron walks into a bar and asks the bartender, "How much for a drink? For you, no charge." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> write it down. Write it. You can yeah, use write it, it down you and want. tell it to your friends. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, I got two more. Believe it or oh not. Oh my gosh. Okay, you're on a roll. Why can't you trust Adams? They make up everything. Oh. Wow. Wow. Because everything's made of atoms. They make up everything. As terrible as that joke is, I'd have to rate that as the best one you've told in, in this little non-segment that we do. Oh, man. Which <laughs> in this says, says everything you need to know about this segment, if that's the best we've come to. Okay. So uh, uh, I did this one for you, Senny, because... Um, because of uh, uh, your boyfriend's engineering background. Okay. The optimist sees the glass is half full, 
the pessimist sees it as half empty. The engineer sees the glass being twice as large as it needs to be. Oh my gosh, he says Boom! that too. Didn't Thanks he? for listening. Oh my gosh. What's that? Oh, he loves that. He loves that joke too. <laughs> oh, you've heard it before. Yeah, from yeah. Him. He actually has a shirt that says that too. <laughs> oh no, kidding. All right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you again. Thank you again. Mm-hmm. Or are you speaking generally to the audience? Yeah, well, just in general for letting me be on this show for like three weeks. That's That's been great. It's been a very... Scary. We loved you on the show, Miss Wong, and I totally mean it when I say come back whenever you like. <laughs> Thank you. Well, hopefully Carolina will enjoy her time back. We will welcome her back next week with open arms. And um, I don't know. You guys got to say anything else? So we continue the awkward ending. Probably the awkward ending. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Why did we all sing bye? Uh, I don't know. Bye. (laughs) It's really awkward.